We're in the book of Philippians, so if you'll open with me to Philippians chapter 4, we're coming to the end of this great epistle and this great chapter within this epistle. And last week we started through this very touching section beginning in verse 10 where the Apostle Paul begins to convey his very personal and warm affection for this church, for their grati- his gratitude for them. The Philippians, you'll remember, had sent a material gift to Paul via uh, a faithful servant from, from their church by the name of Epaphroditus. And the gift certainly had money involved. There, there may have been some clothing involved as well, but whatever the case, it was a material gift that was given for for Paul's relief, for his need. And he told them that he was very, very grateful for their kindness expressed to him. But he was grateful not so much for the gift, but for what the gift meant to him. He saw in that money gift, in that material gift, a rekindled relationship with this church whom he loved and whom and by whom he knew he was loved, he saw this gift from their hands as an expression of their love for him, and he, he conveyed to them his gratitude really for that, that there was new life evident on the vine. He used that language, if you remember. He also conveyed to them his contentment that he was content in Christ and that he really wasn't in any need. He was grateful for the gift, but it wasn't as if he needed it because Christ was his sufficiency. Christ was his satisfaction. His well-being was independent of of anyone, and he was was self-sufficient in the best sense of the word. He had learned how to be content in Christ, and we made a point of that, that contentment in Christ is something that is learned. We don't come out of the womb contented people. We learn to be content in Christ as we live the Christian life, and whether he had money or had none, whether he was living in the lap of luxury or he was was destitute, he was satisfied. Whoever has Christ has everything, and that is something that we must learn. That's not a proud statement. It may be a bold statement, but it is not pride to say that. It is reality, and it's a reality that must be learned. So Paul, frankly, could have done without the gift because he was satisfied in Christ already, but he did see the love and the kindness and the Christian affection that was behind it, and it caused him to rejoice, not just in the gift that the Philippians sent, but to rejoice in the Lord himself. He saw the invisible hand of God behind the giving of the Philippians. So as we continue in these final words of thanks from the Apostle Paul, I'm going to give you just three general headings. We're going to look at this more by way of application today, uh, at least in the way that we outline it. I was tempted to bring a number of general principles for, for Christian giving this morning. I told you last week, this is one of those texts that really gives us a lot in terms of, of what it means to, to give to the cause of Christ in this world. I was tempted to bring in a number of other principles, but we're going to leave it at just three. And here they are. We want to see, first of all, that gospel giving is relational. That's verses 14 
to 16. Secondly, that gospel giving is rewarded, verses 17 and 18. And finally, that gospel giving is reciprocal, and that is verses 19 and 20. Now, each of these general headings will have a principle embedded in them, and I'll try to make those clear to you as we go through. But let's begin by reading our passage for the morning. Philippians chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 10 by way of review and read through to verse 20. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at last, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, we come to this word again today remembering that it is your word and we ask, Lord, that you would teach us from it, that by your spirit you would give us insight into these things, that we would grow with respect to salvation and that we might treasure still more and more the salvation that we have, all the riches, all the blessings that we have in Christ and, Lord, ultimately that we might honor him who is the indescribable gift himself and Lord through him to you who is the giver of all good things thank you for your love and your faithfulness thank you for the gift of your word we ask that you would make it clear to us now in Christ's name amen so let's look at our first general heading that is that gospel giving is relational Paul writes in verse 14 Nevertheless, and when he says that, he's connecting back to what he said in verse 10, that he was pointing to his joy about this concern that the Philippians had expressed towards him. And now he says, nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul's great joy over the Philippians' renewed concern now turns to a statement of commendation. He commends them for their kindness and their sacrifice in ministering to his physical needs by way of a monetary gift. And note what he says to them. He says, you have done well. You've done a noble thing to care for me in this way. It was a good thing. It was a pleasing thing. It was a fitting thing that they had done. One which expressed love to Paul, 
but one also that, that was pleasing to God and it honored God, as we shall see in a moment. And as I reminded you last week, and we see in this text, Paul is writing very carefully. It's as if he's, he's playing that game Django. He's, he's trying to, to express things and, and, and put in this little bit and that little bit without, without somehow being misunderstood by the Philippian church. He didn't want to be misunderstood because it's so easy to be misunderstood when you're talking about things money. He had received a gift, and he wanted to express his gratitude for it, but he didn't in any way want to appear manipulative as though he was somehow setting them up for yet another gift, or somehow he was disappointed that they hadn't given to him recently. So he's been working his way through this very carefully, and he continues to work through this very carefully. He had been accused in Corinth and accused in Thessalonica of performing what he performed by way of ministry for selfish gain because he was greedy and covetous. And Paul wanted to avoid all of that. So notice again that Paul's emphasis here, even while he's thanking them for the gift, is not the gift itself. How did Paul view this gift? Well, back in verse 10, you'll remember that his joy was over this this flowering again of their relationship with him. It was about their relationship with the apostle. And then he talked about it as a source of great joy in the Lord, seeing the invisible hand of God working through the Philippians to supply his need. It was about his relationship with the Philippians. It was about his relationship with the Lord. And here he comes back again and he says, look, this this." This was a good and noble gift because you are sharing in my afflictions. You see, it's all wrapped up in relational language. Paul says, you've done well, note these words, to share with me in my affliction. This is such an important principle for us to lay hold of. That word share is the word we get fellowship from. The Philippians were in fellowship with Paul in his chains, in his imprisonment, in his affliction. There was a joint partnering in and a communion with this beloved apostle in everything that he was suffering from 800 miles away. They were connected with him. It was as if they were there with him in that cell, in that home. Paul looked at money, but he didn't think about money. He thought about the love of these people for him and the love of Christ for him. It was a joint partnership, not merely the meeting of some material needs. And he says, in particular, it was a joint fellowship in my suffering, flipsis. It's that that word that means pressed. Paul was under pressure, right? Prison will do that to you. All kinds of affliction will do that to you. It, it, it's tightening the vice, if you will, on, on somebody's life, this idea of affliction, distress, tribulation. Paul says, look, you were in the vice with me. You've joined me. When you sent your gifts to me, my afflictions now are being born 
by you. They're lighter for me to deal with because you're helping me. Have you ever known that sort of thing? The love of Christ expressed to you through believers who come alongside of you in your sorrow or in your affliction, and it feels lighter. You're encouraged. You're uplifted. Paul's rejoicing. I want you to see this principle and just remind you of it. You've, you've, you've heard this text on a couple of occasions in the past, but turn over to 3 John, right there before the book of Jude and Revelation. Look at 3 John and verse 5. 3 John and verse 5. John is encouraging the church to continue in ministering to traveling missionaries, those who go out for the the sake of the gospel. And he says, verse 5, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers. These were traveling missionaries, preachers who came into town, and the church would welcome them in and support them and then send them on their way with money and supply. And he says, They have testified. So these traveling preachers have come to John and they've testified to John about the love of the church. Isn't that a joy to think of that? People who would have been supported by us perhaps and then are in another context and they begin to say that church in Meta Vista, the love of Christ is in them, how they cared for us. John writes that they testified of your love before the church and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. In other words, when when you go to send them on their way, your mindset should be, how would the Lord want me to supply for these people? For they went out for the sake of the name. That's what Daryl talked about earlier this morning preceding our singing. They went out for Christ all that he is and all that he did and his gospel and his kingdom, and they accepted nothing. They didn't accept financial support from the Gentiles, from the non-believers. And he says, and this is what I really want you to see, therefore we ought to support such men, note this, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Beloved, you want to be a missionary? You can either go or you can give. And in giving, you're going. In sending others amply supplied, you're on the mission field. We've got to cling to this principle or we will never get it. We think we're just going to be keeping the lights on and paying somebody's salary. That is not what we're doing when we're giving. We are engaging in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as he spreads his kingdom across this planet. Paul speaks here in very noble terminology. He says, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. I had the joy this week of seeing the Lord do that very thing. You know our brother Eddie Rowe down there at seminary. He has gone out to prepare himself for a life of gospel preaching ministry, right? Well, as happens in L.A., his truck and his tools got ripped off. And his means of a living then was limited. We had a brother in this church take his own tools 
and send them down. Good tools, not harbor freight. Good tools. And here I am picking these tools up, and I, I had to get them to, to a group of people heading down to the Shepherds Conference so that they could get those down to Eddie. We had to rely on another church for that. And so gathering these things up into my arms, the very offering that is, that is pleasing to Christ as we care for our brother in Christ, and I get a phone call from another pastor who says, you can contact this guy. He's actually going down with us, and he just lives up the road from you on Meta Vista Road. I called the man up. The man says, well, I was, a, I'm a, I was a former tool guy, and I'm retired, and those tools aren't doing anything for me. He says, I've got more tools. Blessed be our God who gives richly. So encouraging. But here's why I bring up Eddie. I want you to think about it. I don't know. I haven't talked to him. He hasn't got the tools yet. In thinking about this, though, I envisioned Eddie receiving those tools from these brothers that he does not know, a gift from the church so that he might sustain himself with meaningful labor. And I think of Eddie, and I think, what is Eddie's response going to be? How is he going to look at those tools? Is he going to see them and say, oh, sweet, I can get back to work and make a living? I wonder what took them so long. I don't think so. I think Eddie's going to look at those tools and his mindset is going to be, praise God for those people. It's never about the tools. It's never about the money. It's relational. It's fellowship. That's why Paul says, you have done well to share with me in this matter. It wasn't about a few coins so that Paul could pay the bills. It was about the love and fellowship of a group of people who stood in, in corporate solidarity with a suffering apostle. This wasn't a financial transaction. It was about relationship. It was about fellowship. And not only among brothers, but it was about fellowship with the Lord himself. What did Jesus say in Matthew 25, 40? Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. What did the Lord say to this very man writing this epistle? You remember he was formerly known as Saul before he became Paul. And you remember that he was pursuing and persecuting the church hotly. He was after Christ's people. He was locking them up. He was putting some to death. He was after the church of Christ. And yet when he's confronted on the road and he is knocked from his feet and, and, and the Lord speaks to him, what does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I thought he was persecuting the church. Yeah, that's right. You poke the people of God. You poke Jesus himself. You see, this is the way that works. 
and, and, and so vital and intimate are the bonds between Christ and his people. To, a, to afflict the people of God is to afflict Christ himself. And so it is that these relational bonds also work the other way to show kindness and compassion toward Christ's people is the same as doing it to Jesus himself. Beloved, in giving tools to Eddie in supporting the work in India, in supporting the work in Romania, in supporting the work wherever we support the work, in Alaska, understand that as every dollar that flows, every act of kindness, every act of mercy, every prayer that is prayed, all of that is ministry, yes, unto those missionaries, but ultimately and finally, it is ministry to the Lord himself. That's our first principle embedded, our sub-principle, if you will, embedded in this, is that ministering or meeting the needs of Christ's people is to give to Christ himself. And Paul saw this as a very good and noble act toward the Lord, one which they had shared many years before. Look with me at verse 15. Paul wants the Philippians to know he hasn't forgotten their commitment to him and to the Lord's work over the years. He says in verse 15, you yourselves also know. The Philippians were well aware of this. He says, I don't need to remind you, but I'm going to remind you, Philippians, I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to bring it up. I haven't forgotten it, and neither has the Lord. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, he's reflecting back one full decade, and he says, At the preaching of the gospel, when I first started preaching the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my need. I like this. This is sanctified sentiment. This is Paul getting warm and fuzzy. This is Paul reflecting back and thinking, do you, do you brothers and sisters recall this? We can rejoice in this together, can't we? That this has not been a short time that you've been, you've been, you've been good to me and committed to the Lord's work. Now, this has been a decade long. Even when you were an immature, a young church, way back then, do you remember? You were the first church and the only church to be giving to me as I worked for the Lord's purposes. And you sent to relieve my suffering and to promote the gospel more than once. See, he had said this back in chapter 1 and verse 5. He said they were participants in the work of the gospel from the first day until now. And he says to them, look, you were the only church that did this. It was you alone. And I don't think he's saying that necessarily to slight other churches. He's saying this in the context of joy over the fact that they, they'd been with him from the beginning, and that delighted his heart. We read from this earlier today, but 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are actually the record of this very giving. And I just want to point out a few things. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, To the Corinthians, Paul wanted to make a collection for the impoverished church in Jerusalem, and so he writes to the Corinthians to stir them up to give. 
But the way that he stirs them up is by bringing up the churches of Macedonia, Philippi being one of them. And he says, now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God. Again, do you see it? The giving is an expression of the grace of God in the life of a church. I want to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. I didn't have to arm twist them. I didn't have to compel them. I didn't have to manipulate them. We didn't need a smoke show and a fun drive and a, and a petting zoo to try and get people to give. These people were poor. They were suffering. And he goes on to say, they begged me for participation. They would not have it any other way because the grace of God was working in them because they were so eager to give out of, a, out of a willing gratitude for all that Christ Jesus had done for them. And again, giving is relational. I love this. Verse 5, he says, this wasn't as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. What a church and anytime I say that, what I'm really saying is, what a God. Who made these Philippians like this, that even in their immaturity, they were a newborn babe as a church, but their hearts were so eager and so grateful for what Christ had done, they would part with their material wealth so that other Christians might be supported. That is something else. They had shared with Paul repeatedly. And Paul says these gifts, again, he uses the same word when he says shared. These gifts were a fellowship with me in the work, and you've done it more than once. Again, brothers and sisters, think about all that is tied up in giving and receiving of money. What is money? Money is nothing, money is power. Money is simply power, power to do stuff with. The question is, will we do things on earth for the things of earth, or will we do things for God and with a view to the future and the spreading of his kingdom and store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal? That's what these Philippians were committed to. And they were committed to people like Paul, people who were committed to Christ and the spread of the gospel. And this gift proved to be simply emblematic, really, of their love and friendship and fellowship. And Paul treasures these people, and he wants them to know it. So not only is gospel giving relational, but it's also rewarded. That's our second point this morning, that gospel giving is rewarded Paul says, you, you did well to send your gift to me. Your love and your concern mean so much to me, but I want you to understand my heart in the matter again. He comes back to this treading carefully. Verse 17, 
not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. You see the way he's qualifying his statements all the time in this? He's walking, if you will, on on eggshells to a certain degree. I'm thankful, but again, I don't want you to think that I'm thankful primarily for the money and the relief. What I'm thankful, what I'm really seeking, he says, this is what I really want, what I'm really after is the reward or the fruit, the profit, which increases to your account. Now, we're cynical, aren't we? We hear that and we think vacuum salesmen. We hear, I'm really, this is really, I, I, I'll receive for your good. We, we, we hear that with a tone that is not right to bring to this text. Paul is not setting them up. He means this. He says, this isn't about my temporal circumstances. This is about your eternal reward. And that's what I'm after. And again, the principles just flow out of this thing. Gospel giving, brothers and sisters, is a guaranteed investment. You get that, right? We buy mutual funds so that we can divide the profits and the losses and hopefully end up in a somewhat conservatively better spot when we retire than when we started. We're looking for ways to maximize our investment. Every penny that's invested in the kingdom of heaven pays rich dividends. And again, Paul is not setting them up for another request. Look at what he says in the very next breath in verse 18. But I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. You see what he's saying there? He's not buttering them up for another handout. He's trying not to manipulate them into giving him more. He says to them, look, I have more than I need. Your gift has supplied me. I have an abundance. He's saying to them, don't even think about sending more. There's no need for it. Which in and of itself is really an amazing statement given the circumstances that he's in. Paul here stacks up one term on top of another. He says, I'm full. That word simply means to be full. In in other words, my cup is all the way up to the brim. But that's just the first term. Then he says, I have an abundance. This word means to superabound. In other words, my cup's not only full, but it's actually spilling over. And then he says, I'm amply supplied, which is a word that means to cram He says, look, it's spilling out of the cup and onto the table and off the edges of the table. I don't need any more. See, it wasn't about Paul's circumstances. And it wasn't about the the size of the gift that they sent to him. My guess is the gift was relatively meager by our standards. And so we come here to, a, to another great principle of Christian giving. The first one was that meeting the needs of Christ's people is to give to Christ himself. The second is this, giving to Christ's people in this life will be rewarded by Christ in the next. 
that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about fruit. He's saying that everything you have given to me, that will all be super abounded back to you in the future. I'm looking toward your eternal reward in your temporal giving. What I seek is the fruit that will abound. These Philippians were storing up treasure in heaven. And this is just the point that the fruit of God that is born out of the people of God is going to be rewarded by God in the last day. And Paul says, I want your reward to be rich. I'm not seeking the gift. What I'm really excited about most as I hold this money in my hands is the thought that Christ is going to reward you for all eternity, joy that will never end, pleasure that will never stop giving. He gives us further perspective of God's view of this gift in verse 18 at the end. Look at it. He describes it as a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And that is a, a figure of speech. That is a metaphor. It's the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's not just flowery language. It actually is very technical language in the Old Testament. And Paul draws on it here. And again, if you'll get this, it'll sanctify your giving. It will get way beyond the concept of, you know, do I need to tithe the full 10%? That is not what we're talking about here. How should the Philippians think about their gift? Well, they should think about it this way, that it is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The language is first used in Genesis 8.20, that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And that exact language is what Paul quotes here. It's used over and over in the book of Leviticus. It became technical language for an offering given in the right way with the right heart. Do you see how this is so far beyond just simple passing the plate and getting your tax return at the end of the year? We've often asked the question, you know, if, if, if it would be interesting to see, wouldn't it, if the government fully and finally removed that tax exemption for, for money given to, to nonprofits, would we still give? Well, I know the answer to the question because I know Christ and I know Christ's people. And I know the spirit who mightily works within us. And so Paul here uses the most profound language. When you think about the Old Testament worshiper coming with that, that lamb or that dove or that grain offering, that free will offering, and they would come and they would, they would sacrifice that lamb or give that grain offering to the priest and then it would be offered up in smoke. Paul says that's the way it is. When you give, the essence of the gift of the Philippians was like an Old Testament sacrifice given in the way that God appointed and given with the right heart, and it was motivated by faith and gratitude, and God smelled it, and it was well-pleasing to him.
to share financially in the temporal needs of God's people and the propagation of the gospel is a sweet savor to God. And we should think of it that way. We have chosen by way of having a box in the back to prioritize certain biblical virtues and values over others. Someone has pointed out that by passing a plate, there is that sense of, 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 of corporate giving to God that we kind of miss. And I said, yeah, I can understand that. Because that's really what it is. It is this sacrifice upon the altar that rises up to God. Which is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, you just heard it, that each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you've heard enough times that passage preached to know that he means a hilarious giver, one who gives freely and abundantly and sacrificially. It's, it's, not, it's not begrudging. God does not have to twist our arms, pry open our wallets. You see, and all this goes together, doesn't it? Because Paul's contentment was in Christ, not in circumstances. His, his sufficiency was in Christ, not his bank account. And so it ought to be for us. And the Philippians here thought it was a privilege to give to Paul and a privilege to give to gospel ministry. And they were not giving under compulsion. They were giving generously because of their heart for the Lord and all that the Lord had done for them. And we should do the same. The Lord delights in our very tangible expressions of generosity given in love and gratitude. That is an act of worship when you give. And it is an acceptable sacrifice before God when we meet the needs of others in gospel service. Paul says, in essence, look, your gift will not be forgotten. It is a sweet savor to the Lord, and he will reward you in the end. Now, there's a third principle in our text this morning. And it is this, that those who give generously to Christ's people will never be in want. Those who give generously to Christ's people will never be in want. We have that in the promise of God's word. This is our third general heading this morning. Gospel giving is reciprocal. It is reciprocal. When things are given, things are given in return. Paul says, my God, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Just as you ministered to my need, I want you to know that God will minister to yours. He will not leave you in any need. He will supply all of your needs, note this, according to his riches. Not out of them, not something out of them, but according to his riches. He is the wealthiest God anywhere. He owns everything the cattle on a thousand hills and the cattle on 10,000 hills, and he hasn't even talked about the cattle in the valleys. He owns everything, and he will give to you according to his vast, glorious riches. 
Now remember that this verse comes in a context. There's all kinds of teaching out there that simply says, if you give $1, God will give you back 100 If you give $1,000, God will, God will make you a millionaire. If that is your motivation for giving, that is a dishonor to the Lord, and it is a defiled gift. We give out of gratitude. We give out of love. We give out of appreciation. And the promise here is that you will not be in any need. And we know this, that God is gracious and he is the one from whom all good gifts come down and he gives all good things to be enjoyed and we are so far from living at a level of necessity, it almost makes this text, uh, you know, we just go, come on. With food and covering, we'll be content? Give me a break. I've had food and covering my whole life. That's never been threatened. Yeah, well, God has placed you here. Be careful. This text teaches us that those who give generously and sacrificially towards God's people and God's purpose will never be in need. You will never have less than is necessary. He will supply you according to the standard of his own glorious riches. And that giving is sometimes by way of financial gift from God. He gives you power to make wealth. He somehow does, in fact, restore your financial gift with a financial gift. But it's so much more than that. the joy and the delight of engaging and meeting the needs of people, nothing compares to that. It is better to give than to receive, right? And I'm not trying to explain this away in any way. I don't believe the Apostle Paul would explain it away in any way. I just think in our context, it's been so abused by Benny Hinn and his ilk that that, that needs to be said, this isn't the law of hundredfold return. This isn't make a faith vow and the Lord will, will put you up in a palace. That's not what this is teaching. What it is teaching is this that God will reward you according to his glorious riches and they are glorious because they're in vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ and he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all how will he not also with him freely give us all things you will never have to worry beloved about those things your heavenly father knows that you need them and so Paul makes this promise to them, and you say, well, how did the apostle know? Well, he had it on good authority. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. Proverbs eleven twenty four and 25, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more, and there is one who withholds what is justly due, and it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous. Can I say it again? The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 19, 17. The one who is gracious to a poor man, get this, lends to the Lord. 
and he, the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. Matthew 6, 20, or 32 and 33, don't worry, Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. You seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Again, the Lord, Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Paul knew those words. Paul believed those words. Paul knew the God who is rich and is a giver. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is the text we heard read in part beginning in verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He's talking in, in a context here again about financial giving to relieve the needs of other saints and to propagate the gospel. He says the one who sows sparingly, you, you don't plant much, you'll also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in everything, you'll have an abundance for every good deed. Do you see that? You, you cannot outgive God. As it is written, he scattered abroad and gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness and you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Remember, all giving is relational and all giving is rewarded. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Do you see this? The giving of the Philippians and the giving of the Corinthians and the giving of other churches in Macedonia resulted when that money relieved the needs of the poor in, in Jerusalem. It would result in thanksgiving. And he even ties it to the, to the fact of their faith in verse 13 because of this proof, the proof given by this ministry. What proof, Paul? What are you talking about? Well, he says, they, the, the, those who are receiving the money in Jerusalem, the church there, will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. The giving, the giving of the Philippians was evidence of the grace of God in the Philippians and their gratitude for their salvation. And the very proving of that was the fact 
that the Philippians did not seek to white-knuckle their money. They lived with an open hand, and they were glad to give it because they valued the things of Christ above the things of earth. Our first principle was that meeting the needs of Christ's people is to give to Christ himself. Our second was that giving to Christ's people in this life will be rewarded by Christ in the next. And our third is that those who give generously to Christ's people will never, never be in want. Beloved, this should increase our eyes of faith. We should, in response to this, again, be reminded of the glory of letting go of, of, of mammon, of whatever our material goods are, that we might depend on the Lord, that we might see the gospel go forward, that we might see relief come to those who are in need. Your generosity will be exceeded by God's generosity back to you. Paul says so. God says so. Don't fear. The economy's tightening. Better tighten the belts. Better give less. Or we won't what? Fill in the blank. You won't what? I call it unbelief. It's just unbelief. Somebody may be visiting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, these church people are always talking about money. Listen, we don't talk about it around here. That's why you see that stony look on the, everybody's face out there. People are like, huh? Well, you're talking about money? I'm talking about money. Why? Because we want money? No. We're amply supplied, aren't we? We are. We're overflowing. For 40 some odd years, God has met the needs of this church and many others through this church. And we just need to excel still more. Okay, the economy's tanking. Well, if that's so, that's okay. Our God will supply all of our needs. We fear not. We charge forth. That's what we do. I don't mean by charge, put it on your credit card. Don't, don't, don't think that's what I meant. I know you're in Corinthians. I want you to stay there. I'm just going to read to you. Paul, Paul is taken up with all of this. He sees God's grace working through the people of God for the needs of God, for the purpose of the kingdom of God, the advancement of the kingdom, and the relief of those who are suffering. And in all of it, Paul sees behind that this, this driving force of God himself, the grace of God being manifested, and he just wells up in doxology. He says, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul exults in the architect of the plan of redemption. He delights in the God who converts selfish sinners into saints in Christ Jesus who, would, who, who, who are just living for the kingdom of heaven. It's beautiful. This table, beloved, is tied up in all of this. This table represents a gift, doesn't it? This table represents giving. This table represents grace. This table for us is an expression of gratitude. It, it pictures the glory of God. It, it speaks to the good of sinners. 
And as we come to it, I want to remind you and take you back to chapter 8 and verse 9 of 2 Corinthians, where in this context of monetary and material giving, Paul reminds them, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He is the indescribable gift. And his giving was ultimately relational, wasn't it? In the greatest sense of the word, he reconciled fallen sinners to their creator, that we might be called the sons of God, that we might have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit, that we might have fellowship with one another. This table is relational. It is a fellowship that, that we share because of the sacrifice of Christ. It is also Christ's giving. His, his great gift will be rewarded as well. The Father was well pleased by the Son's sacrifice. It was a sweet savor acceptable to God. And the Lamb will receive the fruit and the reward of his suffering, a people for himself, blameless and above reproach. Listen to the words of Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, meaning Christ, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, Now here's the reward. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Christ will receive the endless worship of the redeemed. Revelation 5, 12, and 13. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, he will be rewarded for his sacrifice. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And in some sense, Christ's glorious gift, in some very small sense, his gift is also reciprocal. Not that we in any way offer by way anything to Christ by way of merit, but by way of response. Isn't it the heart, beloved, of every single one of us who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ to offer our lives as a sacrifice in return? to make our lives a living sacrifice for him. Isn't it your heart's joy in gratitude for the gift of the Son to lay down your life in gratitude and worship to give all that you are to die that you might live to him? By the grace of God, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so I say this morning as we come to this table, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Our Lord, you are the indescribable gift, a gift that is beyond description.
and our hearts are overwhelmed with a gratitude that our mouths cannot utter. We cannot articulate how thankful we are. But Lord, our souls know it very well. You are our King. You are the Lord of Lords. You are holy and separated from sinners, and yet for our sake and in pleasing your Father, Lord, you offered yourself on our behalf on the tree, taking our sins and drinking down the wrath of God on our behalf. And Lord, you reconciled us to the Father, and now we know the joy of fellowship with you and with the eternal Godhead. We know fellowship with one another, and Lord, the joys of life in the church, and uh, Lord, beyond that, we, we know that we have this joy and this delight forever, because the work that you accomplished, you accomplished once forever. Lord, you are worthy to be worshipped. You are worthy to be honored. You are worthy of every material thing we own. It is yours. You're worthy of every dollar we've ever made. It belongs to you. Lord, you are worthy of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You alone are worthy, and we acknowledge you as such, and Lord, our hearts exult in the God of our salvation. Amen.